For me, doing the purpose is very important. Everyone deserves to be helped. So moments of conscientious crisis probably have been with situations where I felt the leader or the leaders, are they being purposeful? Right. Are they being selfless enough versus being self-interested and things can get a little bit political? But for every two of those, there are 10, 12, 20 leaders who give it their best, do things for the right reasons, and try many times rise to the occasion and uncover something very powerful within themselves. I could just continue every day to do what I do. And right. I love that because I have the privilege of witnessing these light bulb moments. I have a lifetime goal of helping at least a million people through wow. my direct efforts to help them uncover their whole and true self and channel right. that towards better decisions and more positive influence. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Say hello to Basket, transforming Indonesia's supply chains and redefining what's possible in commerce. Basket sees the untapped potential in over 200,000 distributors and wholesalers. This startup merges tradition with innovation, technology, and financial support. They are not looking to disrupt. They are here to collaborate. The results are modernized operations, streamlined supply chains, and a win-win for manufacturers and consumers alike. Learn more at www.basket.app. Hey, Huijin. Really excited to have you on the show. You're an incredible CEO counselor, and you have an incredible journey. So I wanted to share your journey. Could you introduce yourself real quick? Well, maybe I'll use three words I think have characterized me in different eras of my life that I think makes me unique. One is Energizer Bunny. So that's my nickname from college. I do have a lot of energy and my soul searching journey, in fact, helped me uncover even more energy. Second is Compass. I think even back in my MBA days, I've had a strong sense of direction, whether it be it for myself or a business challenge. And of course, leadership challenges. And thirdly is a challenger. You know, I cannot just stay with the status quo, the normal. I love to push the boundaries, love to push myself, love to, to push other people, even when yeah. they might be more comfortable in the comfort zone. But I think in these disruptive times, we cannot afford not to challenge ourselves. Amazing. So you said that you had the early nickname of Energizer Bunny back from college. Yeah. So you're yeah. Wharton for your bachelor's. Uh, I was. You did an yes. MBA at Harvard. So I did. So you share that I common did. affiliation. Indeed. But the big difference Indeed. is that I was not a Baker scholar and you were a Baker hey. scholar. And for those who don't know, <laughs> it basically means that you're really smart and hardworking. You do your participation. You're on top of everything. So I can definitely imagine you being an Energizer Bunny back then. So how did that nickname Thank come you. about? Thank you. You know, I think it came from some of my great friends and colleagues at a little bank in the University of Pennsylvania where I went to school. And it's a student credit union. And so right. I actually worked there 
It's a completely student-run bank for mm -hmm. most of my four years there. Right. And I became the CEO and people maybe thought, wow, how does she have the energy to do all her classes fairly well, as well <laughs> as come to be a teller. I issued loans, did customer service. <laughs> Back in the days, we were on the forefront of technology or so we thought. We did yeah. email statements, et cetera, wow. internet banking Me in 2000. But you know, I was so energized by my colleagues and so energized by being a leader. And that was when I realized that maybe I'm not, I can be more than just a bookworm that did well on exams. I mean, you're a Baker Scholar, an MBA, you had a perfect GPA, an undergrad. So it sounds like academics and all this was really important for you back then because it's not an easy thing to do, especially when there's so many opportunities in terms of social life or in terms of exploration. So why was this really important for you? I think it probably came from my childhood experiences of migrating from China to Canada mm. when I was mm. 10 years old. Mm -hmm. I went through an experience where I was sitting in class and I didn't understand anything because I didn't know English. Mm. So for the first time in my life, I was actually not good in school. Ah. And as a child, the only thing I knew how to be good was to do well while in school. So I think the whole episode of also trying to adjust to this new place, seeing my parents trying to adjust, and they had mm. a tough time, especially my dad, mm. probably accentuated my drive. Right. To that aggression, I got to do really well so that I can sort of get out of this not doing well phase of life and be in charge of my own destiny, be in charge right. of my own family's destiny. And I think that it's a very typical Asian Chinese thing. The first thing that you come to mind is, hey, I should really just try to excel in school. Mm -hmm. So that was probably mm -hmm. in my little simple child's mind. That was mm. the trade that I did with myself. Okay, Huijin, if you can do really well in school, then you can be in charge of your own life and you don't have to feel so much of the pain and the uncertainty anymore. Of course, later on, I realized that that wasn't the only way. Mm. In fact, academics is a very small part right. of succeeding as a person and in life. But that I think we can talk about later in the podcast. What's interesting is that you mentioned that dynamic of working hard to be good at academics. Did you feel good doing really well in school? Or did you feel like you had to do more? I felt satisfaction that yeah. I did well. But, you know, I remember still so starkly, somebody, yeah. a friend of mine, also from the credit union, asked me, what do you do for fun? And I literally looked at him for fun. What do you mean? He's like, not at the credit union, not at school. What do you do for fun? And it's one of these few questions, I would say, that stumped me. And because I didn't really do a hmm. lot of things for fun. So I think even then in my great success in my own mind, mm. I knew there was perhaps something in myself that was missing. There was something mm. in life that was missing and that I was not quite complete. You knew that and you went to work at McKinsey, right? You worked yeah, there for I four know. years as an engagement <laughs> manager. So it felt like you didn't kick in yet. Well, that, actually it, it did. did. If okay, I can I'm tell you an tell interlude me. story. Yeah. So I joined McKinsey, first as a summer intern, had a great time, therefore yeah. I decided to go back. And uh, I thought it was my fast ticket to becoming a CEO very quickly. Right. That, that was my right. goal at the time. Because GE and McKinsey were known to be the two CEO factories uh, of America. A, a bit different these days, so, but that was the story back then. And I had yeah. a great time. And then two years onward came time to move on, typically to business school, etc. And uh, I had an opportunity to join Goldman's private equity group which was at that time a very prestigious 
opportunity and I actually accepted it. While I still put in that HBS application, there was something about school that drew me to it. And I actually ended up reneging on Goldman Private Equity Group because it's one of the few mistakes from my life that I consider to be a great lesson. I, I reneged after I got the acceptance to HBS. And when I had right. held that acceptance letter in my hand, I knew I wanted to go. Right. And I knew that I did not want to go to Goldman. Right. And the reason, really, I intuitively understood that if I went to Goldman, right. do private equity finance, it would just emphasize the analytical, aggressive part of me even right. more. And I didn't right. think I need even more developments in these really already super developed areas. Right. Whereas HBS represented for me this, this path of trying to broaden myself to develop the more, now I can say, the relational, mm. the human side of things, right. rather than getting deeper into the numbers. Right. So what was it like to be an engagement manager at McKinsey? I asked because my wife was an engagement manager at right, McKinsey. Right, right, So she knows a little bit of what was it like to do at the business school. But I yeah, wanted to hear about your yeah. experience doing that because you said you felt like there's an analytical side of it. You explored a different aspect of that at business school. But McKinsey is also very analytical as well. So it was a great time. I think that I graduated from HBS at the age of 26 and became an engagement manager shortly after. The challenge was exhilarating, both the analytical side, but also I got stretched to manage people for the first time. And I realized I really love that. And that's also one of the main reasons why I do what I do now is because I love the opportunity to coach and mentor others and be mentored by others right. as well. I also realized that as a project manager, you really get to see the upper management ranks how they interact with each other, how they oftentimes don't necessarily like each other. They compete, sometimes healthily, sometimes, frankly, unhealthily, and they have to make some very difficult decisions. Right. As a strategy consultant, though, I felt that you were more of an observer than really a sort of an influencer in these human and power dynamic. And, and ultimately, I realized I was less interested in the business issues and more interested in mm. the human and the power dynamics. So this is an interesting dynamic because you mentioned a few times now that, you know, you're always very good at analytics and the logic and of course academics and then you showed up both in yeah. undergrad yeah. and business school. But you also said that for a long time you had this was a simmering curiosity towards yes, the yes. more personal side of it. Yes, but yes. still on the outside of it, it feels like these are all like the top schools, the top companies. So I'm kind of curious, yeah. yes. how did you navigate that? Did you have that conversation personally? Did you have that conversation with friends? How did you start to shape and explore? So I started to explore when I realized there were beginning to be these voices of doubts in my head, in my heart. That maybe you don't necessarily want to make partners so fast as like you wanted to before on this mm. little track that you put yourself on. Right. And for me, that was a really big deal because I never had doubt about anything. Mm. That's probably a personality fault of mine, but wow. sometimes it comes in handy. But doubt is a very unusual thing. Same wow. as worry. I also don't worry about things. To me, right. you know the risks. You right. find a way to deal with it. You make the decision. You move on. So those doubts right. were, I knew then there was something quite off 
but not mm-hmm. off as in something was wrong, but something needed to be explored. I was very lucky. One of the great things about firms like McKinsey and some of the other large financial professional services organizations is that they give you the opportunity to explore and they have private professionals working on every aspect of a company, including organization and leadership. So I started exploring. I signed up for all the training I could get internally about organization, leadership. That's actually how I met my senior partner now and co-author of our newest book, Positive Influence. That was in 2006. And as I experienced these trainings and these senior professionals like Sun Yen talking about what they do, how they do it differently, how they tackle the human and the power issues at the same time as the business issues, I was looking for that resonance. Can I see myself doing that? You know, am I excited about tackling those issues? Could I be good at it? Those were the mm-hmm. central questions I was holding in my mind. And so it took me about two years of this kind of exploration to really come to a conclusion that it was time for for a change. Wow. Conclusion for a time to change. What was it like to reach that conclusion? Was it like, I don't know, I feel like it is the movie version. You're out (laughs) on a ship. In the midst of a storm, there's the moment well, of change, you know. I mean, uh, well, actually, Jeremy, you're absolutely right. I remember some of these moments really well, yeah. which is very surprising to me because if you yeah. asked me to describe other moments of my life, in fact, I would have to be very hard-pressed to do so. <laughs> uh, it was 2008. Yeah. I was in China, living in China at the time. I moved right. back to China as an adult, which is a story in itself. Yeah. And uh, I was asked to join a project that would be doing a China strategy for a European bank. Right. It's something that would be well within my comfort zone, something I know how to do, but also, frankly, something that the outcome is well known, but I won't right. focus on that. And in that moment, it was a Sunday. I was sitting in my kitchen and I needed to get back to the staffer. Right. And I just knew that I did not want to say yes. I wanted to say no. Right. And then it dawned on me that I did not want to just say no to this project, which is the Wicklow request. I actually want to say no to all future such projects. That was the moment I knew that the time had come to be brave, to be acknowledge reality of what was happening inside of myself, the thing that I had loved for five, six years to that point that the path I set myself on, I invested so much of myself, my identity, my time, my energy. It wasn't the path I wanted to be anymore. And I needed to let it go. Mm -hmm. And it felt like a cliff moment. I felt like I I had to jump off the cliff. Mm. And I didn't know whether I was going to fly. Don't know if I have wings or if I would metaphorically just fall down on the beach down there. But I knew I had to go. And you knew that you had to go and effectively say no, right, to future engagements like that. Yes. But that's very different from saying yes to something else, right? So what did you say yes to? Well, this is where the two years of exploration did kick in to help me, which is I remembered that the McKinsey had formed a new practice called the McKinsey Center for Asian Leadership based out of Singapore. And I had met some of the senior partners that were leading the practice. And I knew that they were looking for consultants who have no previous experience doing leadership development Mm. to join the practice. So I very quickly called them up and I said, I'm the answer to what you're looking for. (laughs) (laughs) I have no experience in leadership (laughs) development. I tell you, I thought they do, right? So I thought they could teach me. But anyways, that's another part of the story. They were very kind to take me in, frankly. 
So that's one of the lessons I would pass on to some people. If you make a big change, do make sure you have some place to go, at least temporarily. Yeah. So I went there and I joined that practice, which took me to India and many other places, exciting places. And that's how I got to know Sun Yen much more deeply. And what's interesting is that eventually you chose to make this full-time, right? In terms of leadership development and helping executives with their own personal and professional careers. Could you share a little bit more about how you eventually got to saying yes to that? Because you said earlier that, you know, you joined the CEO factory because they made CEOs. Yes. And there's a big identity target versus becoming someone in the coaching or leadership development industry. Absolutely. Well, the interesting thing is, as I was preparing for our chat today, which I got really excited about, I was reminiscing with myself that the whole thing about being a CEO has always been very central to my journey. The good thing about what I do now for Linhar Group, our firm, we specialize in working with CEOs, founders, and owners, but different types. We work with tech company, CEOs, owners, and founders. We work with Singapore SME CEOs, founders, and owners. collaboration with the National University of Singapore and Enterprise Singapore. So as part of a national service, mm-hmm. we work with, of course, CEOs of very large companies uh, and also of family businesses. Though I don't get to be a CEO myself these days, even though I'm sort of think of myself as CEO of myself, I do get to mm-hmm. help other CEOs really rise to the different demands that they have that are very difficult to navigate. But back to your question, how did I really say yes? To me, it was, I said yes that moment in my kitchen. The question for me was, how was I going to succeed and not fail? Hmm. So one of my insights about myself is that I have some personality qualities that may not be so good for the business of helping others. For example, Mm. I'm very quick to judge. I can make a line even if I have half a dot. (laughs) So you (laughs) would always make fun of me. That's the compass part, right? I'm very energetic, but can be a bit overwhelming for others. And I'm very challenging. So it's been a journey, I would say, to figure out how to use these unique qualities myself, but not overuse it to really in service of others. So I've had to really hone my positive influence skills for myself in how I influence others. And that's also why I feel so passionate about that everyone can become a better leader and and more powerful influencer. And what's interesting is that you've not only started doing it, but you've continued doing this. And I think why someone starts a journey is very different from why they continue the journey. So was there moments where you're like, you had to reinforce your commitment to keep going? Or were there moments where you reflected and said, the reasons about why you're continuing to do this journey is very different from why you started? So for me, doing the purpose is very important. So I've always wanted to do this, not only for CEOs, but also for younger folks who have the potential to be CEOs. But even if they don't become CEOs, that's okay, right? Everyone deserves to be helped. So moments of, I would say, conscientious crisis probably have been with situations where I felt the leader or the leaders, are they being purposeful? Are they being selfless enough versus being, frankly, oftentimes can be self-interested and things can get a little bit political. But for every 
two of those, there are 10, 12, 20 leaders who give it their best, do things for the right reasons, and try many times rise to the occasion and uncover something very powerful within themselves. But a recent moment, I would say, is when I turned 40 and I said to myself, Weijin, how serious are you about this? I could just continue every day to do what I do. And right. I love that because... I have the privilege of witnessing these light bulb moments, these moments when the light turns on people and it's just right. beautiful. So I set a goal. I have a lifetime goal of helping at least a million people through wow. my direct efforts. So indirect and indirect, indirect doesn't count as much because otherwise it would be very easy to reach a million. That to help them uncover their whole and true self and channel right. that towards better decisions and more positive influence. And I think part of that journey you've done has been to do writing. So you've already written one book in yes, Chinese. Yes, and now you're writing yes. another book called yes. Positive Influence. So could you share yes. a little bit more about that writing modality and interest? It came through as all things sort of prompted by different life eras mm. and different people. The first book was really very personal. It's all about how, especially my soul searching journey. I did it with two of my HBS friends. I was in Greater China at the time, and that's why we wrote it in Chinese to help mm. younger Chinese women, especially, find their purpose, find their confidence to be true to themselves uh, at the same time as navigating uh, society and family expectations. Our new book, Positive Influence, the first and last mile of leadership is really actually 12 years in the making. It takes Sun Yen and my and our colleagues' experience from teaching 300 MBA students every year mm. in helping them uncover more of their self-leadership, influence skills, and the courage and capacity to make better judgments. And then combining that with our experiences, counseling CEOs, founders, and owners, we hope to give this gift to the world, how everyone can and should aim for more ambitious, positive outcomes and enhance our skills to achieve such and in the process, uncover more of our best selves and our whole being. What's wrong with a uh, negative influence? It feels like the world is very much kind of positive on that, which is about being very street smart. I think it would be one way to talk about it, being very thoughtful about your power and what other people are trying to convince you to do and power plays and politics. So what's wrong with that? So I'm going to reference a professor of mine, Alan Grossman in HBS. I don't know if he was still there during your times. He taught a class that had something to do with society or leadership. And once asked him this question and he said, well, we didn't, there are black cats and there are white cats. So you have to choose whether you want to be a black cat or white cat. And I was like, that's a bit different from the Deng Xiaoping cat story. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, one of the beefs I have with my very exemplary business school education, two of them, yeah. is that in the classroom, they kind of tell you what good leadership should be. Right. They don't tell you there's a lot not so good leaders and not good such good leadership. And a lot of these other forms of influence that are very powerful. People using their own power unilaterally, manipulation, propaganda, fanning anger and hatred among people, or just even things like social media getting you to go back and again. So it's because there's so much of that we feel so strongly we need to get the message of positive influence out there because the world doesn't suffer from having too little things. There are countries and people who have too little. But if you right. look at Singapore or 
United States or even some parts of China, Japan, we've accumulated so much and used so much of what the world has given us. And we've given the world and other people too little because we haven't cared enough about positive influence. So in the book, we talk about three types of outcomes that we believe every human being and especially leaders in positions of significant authority and power has a responsibility to aim for. First is absolutely productivity. So this is the stuff business people understand. Oh, we love productivity. Profits, profits, let's improve productivity, get more done with less, let's cost cut, etc. The second is actually the satisfaction of people. I think the pandemic proved and the post-pandemic great resignation proved when people are not happy with their lives, even if they're very productive because of many forces that you put in around them, you know what? They're still not going to stay with you and they're still not going to have the well-being that they deserve and need to be good workers and good husbands and wives. Why are we having all these mental health crises across the world? And third is growth. So growth is, of course, about the business's growth. It's also about individual's growth. I think in the context of AI and ChatGPT, if we as human beings are not growing, we will literally be irrelevant mm -hmm. and be replaced by ChatGPT. The stuff that I'm hearing people are doing out there, like talking robots with ChatGPT infuse them, scares me. It scares me because millions and billions of people today could be replaced by, their work could be replaced by a robot. And while you could pay them a basic universal wage, which is what a lot of governments are thinking, you can't pay people self-respect and pride in who they are and what they do. Mm -hmm. oh, you can't pe pay people self-respect. So how do you think leaders can do that? So I think it starts with really caring about all three of the outcomes. And I think that really requires us to want to care because the everyday life of an executive, of a founder, of an investor like yourself is so busy. We could spend 120% of our psychic energies on generating productivity alone. That could consume us. I was like that in my earlier era of my life. As some might argue, I'm still like that. I'm not as much of a people person as others. But I've learned that if you care about the two other outcomes, then you will start to think about how do I need to do the job differently? How do I need to work with my people differently uh, to also uh, get those outcomes as well? So it's forcing ourselves to operate from a place of and not let us off the hook that if we get the productivity stuff. It, that's good enough because we're all really smart, resourceful human beings, regardless of how much education we've had. But if so, but those resourcefulness, smartness can only kick in. And of course, the techniques and et cetera, which you can read about in the book, can mm. only kick in if you start to really care. And could you share about a time that you personally have been brave? That leap was brave, I think, for me. I quit McKinsey shortly after without mm. a job. And because I knew, again, that the road had come to an end. I was learning some things, but not at the rate that I wanted to. And I was afraid I would get stuck in this exploration. So I quit without having any alternatives. But life and God have taken care of me very, very greatly. For those years, I went through probably three to four years. I felt like I was out in the wilderness. And the wilderness for me is about being alone, really, in my own pursuit of trying to find myself. Trying to be the person that I could only vaguely, intuitively feel. And having people look at me strangely. Their eyes clearly said, 
I feel sorry for you, Huijin. You've really lost it. You had so much potential, but now we don't know what's going to become of you. Some people thought I was depressed. One or two people even had the guts to tell me that I was depressed and maybe I should go see a, a counselor. And probably they were right. Right. The whole process of letting go of an old self right. and birthing the true self is a very tumultuous emotional one. It's almost like dying and then renewing yourself, which is why I've dedicated part of our work to creating a community and programs to help people soul search so that people who are willing to be brave can go through it a little bit easier than I had it. Yeah, I love what you said about dying with your old identity and a new one. I think it reminds me of how a lot of grief and negative emotions is now being medicalized into depression, something to be treated with medicine rather than with self-reflection and rebirth. Spot on, spot on. Not easy. Not easy. Is there any advice that you would give to people who are struggling with their identity, death and rebirth? Is there a way to get faster, accelerate it, make it more productive and efficient? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, right? You know, but how would you recommend someone who's going through that process? I'll give you the quick principle and I'll talk about my experience. So the principle, which I learned from reading a lot of books during my soul searching era about anything related to soul searching, developing myself, etc. Awareness. So what I mean here is that if you are in the process of this set of metamorphosis, if something in you is becoming, is dying and then your true self is emerging or something is emerging, awareness means not being afraid to face it. Because with awareness, you can then mobilize different parts of your brain and your heart to guide you to what to do with it. So while my story is very dramatic because I'm a very zero to one, let's go left, right kind of person, I've seen a lot of the folks who've gone through our Life 2 program, a lot of mentees take a lot more of a gradual evolutionary approach. But I think what really helps them face things with a positivity rather than a lot of negativity is their courage to face that there are these tensions and these forces in themselves. Because often people can repress it, say, oh, that's not really very practical. Okay, it can never work. I don't have enough money yet to do X or Y. But actually, often these are really excuses rather than real reasons because they've never done the math. Actually, you, when you ask them, have you done the math? How much you can afford or not visit? I haven't done the math. So I think efficiency in this case is all about confrontation. Confrontation? Yes, confronting these uncomfortable feelings and tensions Within yourself, sometimes it means confronting uncomfortable feelings and tensions with other people. Because if we ourselves change, it also changes the relationship with others. Sometimes I find that others are very supportive. I've had cases where a husband or wife are both thinking about entrepreneurs and one person would say, well, you do it first. I think you've been really waiting for much longer than I have. I'll support you by holding down that job so that we can make it work as a family. But other couples don't necessarily have that kind of arrangement. Mm. And people are afraid to say to their loved one, I feel this inner voice and it's mm. telling me to do something that would be very disruptive. That can be a very hard conversation to have. I think especially in Asia, where families and society have historically been a little bit more conservative. Okay. But I find, however, 
even in Asia, values are changing. I think I've heard one executive say, you know what, parents these days actually tell their kids to quit their jobs if they don't like it, rather than hang in there until they find the next one. Who knows? I just encourage people not to be bound by convention and past norms and just have the real conversations with themselves and have the real conversations with their loved ones. Because who knows, your loved ones may be far more open to this than you might think. And you don't have to suffer alone. On that note, thank you so much. I would love thank to you. summarize. Thank you. I really the, enjoyed it. I'd like to summarize the three big themes from this conversation. The first, of course, is thank you so much for sharing about your own personal identity and journey. I think you encapsulated it well with the opening statement about being an energizer bunny, compass, and challenger in your early years and up till today. I think it was interesting to hear about your own professional and academic and personal evolution from undergraduate to business school to McKinsey and so on and so forth. The second, of course, is thank you so much for sharing a little bit about your own identity shift. So you talked about the death of the old identity and you talked about the birth of a new one and you talked about it in the context, obviously, from a theoretical side, from terms of confrontation, in terms of being upfront of the conversation, but also in terms of your own personal story about what you had to do and how you had to say no and how you went about saying yes. Lastly, thank you so much for sharing about positive influence and talking about why you sat down to co-author this book and talk about positive influence because you feel that society needs it in spite of the negative influences out there in spite of the reality that's out there. And as your professor said, you had to pick to be either a white cat or black cat, which is, I've never heard of that before. Today's the first time. <laughs> I think he said it much more elegantly, but I don't know why the black cat, white cat imagery is stuck with me. It is very stark. Oh, so it is, yeah. We all have these choices. Or maybe I could end on a note of a, a speech from yeah. Theodore Roosevelt. I think it was in the early 1900s. I inspired me. The title of the speech is called The Citizen in the Arena. Right. And the point is essentially, you got to choose whether you're going to be the gladiator fighting in the arena for something that matters. Right. And know that you will be bloodied and even die because it is a fight to the death. Or you can choose to be the people in the stands, criticizing, right. judging the gladiators. Right. Right. And because that's from the comfort of their seats. So, of course, I'm not an operator. I'm not a CEO. I'm not an owner. So I really admire folks who are even more of a gladiator than myself and consider my privilege to help them have more positive influence. But I have in my own way chosen to be a gladiator. And despite being bloodied and, and at the risk always as well. On that note, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy, for having me. I think this is such a lovely podcast and I love all the other stories you've had on it. So thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.